Thanks for listening to the Afternoons with Bill Arnold podcast, available thanks to support from listeners like you. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am always happy when I get a chance to talk to Pastor Rusty George. He is going to be my guest. I love this series I've been doing. We'll probably end it uh, sometime in December, but it's a new friend, the same seven questions. I want everyone to build and strengthen their evangelism and apologetics muscle. And when you hear these questions asked and people respond, I love because I do believe it helps you with your uh, confidence in how you share Christ with others. So, uh, Rusty George is the lead pastor at Real Life Church in Southern California. It's got several, it's a multi-site church with campuses, uh, all over. And he's also author of a book called After Amen, What to Do When You're Waiting on God, which is a great book. Rusty, welcome. Thank you so much, Bill. Honored to be back with you. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking my invite to do my uh, new friend, same seven questions. I consider you a friend and I have I have a, an idea as to how you'll answer this, but I don't know for sure. So let's get started. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. First one might be a little bit of a softball, but is man separated from God? Wow, that is a great question. And I think that's a question a lot of people are asking today. Uh, it used to be what seemed to be a softball question. It seemed to be pretty evident that we are. But in our new day and age where people feel like, uh, I'm a good person. Yes. I kind of make up my own spirituality as I go. <laughs> I'll cobble something together mm-hmm. and God will sort it out at the end. Yep. Um, I think we do wonder about that. But I think that we can look at, at our world and see that we are definitely doing our own thing and it's not turning out well for us. So from the theological perspective, I would say, yes, we are se- separated from God because of sin. God is a holy and perfect God, does not dwell with sin. And so because sin uh, stands as the barricade between us and him, we are separated from him. Can we still live in God's created world? Is he still present in our world? Absolutely. But there is some kind of a barrier between us and him. And Rusty, wouldn't you say that religious people or people who call themselves spiritual uh, are some, some of the hardest people to reach for Christ? Absolutely. Because I think that we all, I mean, everybody has some kind of way they're trying to, to bridge that gap. And it might be through works, it might be through cross my fingers, and it might be to deny that that gap is there. But every time you see a news story of something that you think, boy, that should not happen, that's an indicator that there's something broken in our world. And every time you do something to somebody that you love and you think, I wish I hadn't have said that or done that, that's an indicator of the brokenness that you and I have in our hearts. And so we're all trying to figure out a way. I mean, every major world religion has some kind of way to bridge that gap. It might be works. It might be in Hinduism, it's reincarnation. um, And you try to do a little bit better next time and keep scaling up. It might be to um, uh, separate yourself from uh, from the physical world through Buddhism or uh, Zen meditation. Uh, It might be through um, sacrifices and works through things like... uh, uh, Judaism, uh, or becoming a Muslim, uh, a certain amount of prayers that you pray, but all of our efforts are trying to get towards God. That's the beauty of Christianity. God comes towards us. Mm-hmm. Rusty, how about if somebody said this to you? Um, well, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not separated from God. I don't believe what you believe, but we're all God's children. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just like with my kids. Yeah, they're my kids, but they can leave home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, They can certainly walk away. And I think that everybody's experienced that to some degree because they've had a, maybe a wayward child or a child that just doesn't get engaged anymore once they leave the house. Um, they're begging them to call, but they never do. Um, I, I think that all of us, so we're created by God. Um, there is this distance between us. And, and you know, Dallas Willard said, God will let everybody into his heaven who can possibly stand it. Um, the, the idea there is that heaven is a place where God and us are no longer separated and his watchful eye is present, ever present in our midst, which now we don't always sense that. But I, I think, and I'm digressing here, probably into some other questions. But basically, we live with this knowledge that we're God's kids, but God isn't around. Uh, that's a popular term called deism that kind of separates or that kind of encapsulates that. And many Christians are practicing deists. Mm-hmm. We just kind of we pray and then we go on our may on our merry way and kind of make it happen ourselves. But to say that, yeah, I'm God's kid and we'd never be separated uh, is to basically say that your kids always stay home and they don't and we wander. We all do. Yeah. Pastor Rusty George is my guest. We're continuing our series called New Friends, Same Seven Questions. Rusty, let's go to what is the fate of the lost? And when when, when I say that word lost, what does lost mean? Well, that's a great question. You know, lost is simply untethered. Uh, if you remember the game we used to play as kids on the tennis court or the, the playground as kids, we'd have that tether ball thing with a large pole and then the, the ball on a string. You'd hit it real fast trying to trying to tangle it up. I think what, what we all experience is at some point in our life, we cut that string. And that's what happens when we sin. And now we are tetherless. We are on our own. And, and people that are that are sensing that feel that. They feel this. I'm grasping for something to have a foundation in my life, something to give me sure footing, something to help me pick myself up when things are down. And, you know, Jesus referred to this as like, it's like a lost sheep that's wandered away. It's like a a lost son who's walked away willingly. Um, And the father is pursuing them. What is the fate of the lost? Uh, I, I would I would say it this way. The fate of the lost is to live in eternity separated from God. Now, Jesus referred to that as hell. What does hell look like? Well, there's a lot of theories on that, and we certainly see pictures and images of that. But I don't think we completely understand what it is like to be outside of God's watchful eye, to be outside of God's presence. Even though we walk away, we still live in a universe where God exists. And to finally get our wish to not be bothered by God anymore, it would be a horrendous eternity where we are just left to our own fate without a kind and loving God. I think, and, and I believe it is C.S. Lewis that says, no one is sent to hell. God finally relents and gives them what they've been asking for, and that is to live in a world without God. Mm-hmm. Rusty, when uh, people talk about becoming saved, I, I would love for you to, to get saved. When people hear that, one of the questions that is in their head is, well, what, what am I saved from? How would you answer that? Yeah, I think that's a term that's been really Americanized over the last hundred years, um, where we kind of look at things from the perspective of, all right, I'm destined for hell, now save me, and now I am saved, and I won't go to hell anymore. And maybe that's a, I prayed a prayer, I was baptized, I joined a church, 
It's kind of works-based mentality. What we're saved from is an eternity without God, Mm -hmm. uh, where we're left to our own devices. And to be saved is to be rescued uh, by Jesus. And, And so what does that look like? Well, it's a little bit like if you were drowning and I threw you a life preserver. Um, you know, I, I pull you to shore by the life preserver. Well, who saved you? The life preserver? No, I did because I threw you the life preserver. But at some point, you gotta you got to grab a hold of the thing. you got to let me pull you in. And to be saved is to be rescued from that eternity without Christ that he has made a way for. So good. Now, I sometimes think of that night um, the Titanic went down, and if you were going to live, you would have to be rescued. There was no plan B. Nobody said, nah, I'll just swim to shore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just wasn't an option. You had to be rescued. And so right. um, I like that. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, what is the point where someone is saved? They become saved. And how do you do it? Yeah, I think that's where a lot of us, we kind of get tripped up because we assume it's a one, two, three process. And now suddenly it's done. Um, and, you know, I grew up with the five-finger exercise, which meant you hear the Word of God, uh, you believe it, you confess, you repent, you get baptized. And mm-hmm. that's the, the, the way that it all transpires. I think that you see this time and time again where Jesus keeps telling people, um, follow me. And, you know, if you're watching the TV show The Chosen, you've seen this over and over again where there's this motley crew of people. Jesus keeps looking at us and says, follow me. What does salvation look like? Well, it starts when you begin following him. Mm-hmm. Now, do you learn stuff along the way? Absolutely. I think there's different levels of, man, you know, what Peter knew when he died was a whole lot different than what Peter knew when he first started following. And it's really just this decision of I'm going to transfer my trust. So my trust was in me or my trust was in a religious system or my trust was in I hope I'm good enough. But now I'm going to trust that Jesus is the one that gets me to heaven. I'm going to follow him. Am I yeah. going to be perfect? No. But I'm going to transfer my trust to him. I'm, I'm, I'm betting my life that he is the one that not only you know conquered the grave, but promises to do the same for me. And I will experience that because he said so. Yeah. so I'm transferring my trust to him. Now, I come from a faith tradition that holds firmly to Acts 2.38, which is when you know the people cried out to Peter and they said, what must we do to be saved? And he said, Okay, well, repent of your sin, which means do a 180, I'm going to follow after Jesus, and be baptized into him, which was something they clearly understood because many of them were Jewish, and they understood ceremonial washings. And that was a way to set yourself apart for God. Mm-hmm. Is there anything magical in the water? I don't think so. Um, certainly in some parts of the world where it's dangerous to drink. But I think what you see is I am making a statement of faith to people around me of I am in on this. I appreciate that. When when Jesus said, you must be born again, that mm. that being born from above, that's, that even, you know, I understand we're to follow Jesus. It seems that being born from above is an event. It seems that way to me. It was for me anyway. Yeah, it was for me as well. Um, and I, but I think there's certain mile markers along the road. Um, I think there's a moment you you know you make Jesus your Lord, and a moment you make Him your Savior. It usually happens in the opposite fashion. Where we, <laughs> True. You know, we give we make Him our Savior. I need to be saved, and we're baptized into Him. And then somewhere along the line, we decide, boy, I have not surrendered every area of my life over to His Lordship. And I think that we're in a constant battle of that all the way till 
till eternity. Mm-hmm. So when we uh, start that following Jesus uh, life and commitment, can we have assurance that when we die, we'll be in his presence? Well, I think so, because it seems that Jesus says so, and it seems that uh, the people that uh, came after Jesus continue to talk about that. I mean, Jesus says this to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Um, uh, and, he, you know, he mentions it from water and the spirit. He, he mentions this to um, uh, you know, the people that he meets on the streets from the adulterous woman to Zacchaeus. And they all have, you know, kind of different inter- encounters with him, but they decide to follow him. And then he even says this to the thief on the cross who had no ability to be baptized at that moment. But his simple profession of faith, Jesus says, you know, you'll be with me in eternity. So it really is this, this conscious decision to transfer our trust over to him. And because of that, you know, the Apostle Paul says that I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor, uh, you know, principalities or uh, angels or demons can separate us from the love of God. Um, now, does that mean we can't walk away? Well, that's a whole other question. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, are are we? You know, is there eternal security? Is the phrase people like to use? And I, I don't know. I can tell you that it does seem to be a choice. I mean, the rich young ruler is offered a choice to follow Jesus, and he walks away, and Jesus doesn't chase after him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have people that you see that were following him, like Ananias and Sapphira, and clearly decide to make their own decision. So. I think only God knows the heart. I think we like to get really complicated in, all right, well, you know, can I preach this person into heaven after they've died? Do I know that they've been saved? I, I can just tell you, I think that, you know, as as Willard said, God will let everybody in who can possibly stand it. And, and basically, our followership and our decision to transfer our trust proves that. Mm-hmm. I'll take a little break. My guest is Pastor Rusty George. We're continuing our series on new friends, same seven questions. Rusty is the lead pastor at Real Life Church in Southern California. He's also uh, an author. Um, and his l- l- last book is called After Amen, What to Do When You're Waiting on God. We'll take a short break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I am back with Pastor Rusty George. He's the lead pastor at Real Life Church in Southern California. He's also a loyal Kansas City Chiefs fan, so most Sundays he's in a really good mood. Well, you should be too. The Vikings are oh, great this year. Come on, they're <laughs> yeah, but they're uh, they're probably setting us up once again for some kind of heartbreak. <laughs> they usually do, but no, they're having yeah, a great season. Maybe so, yeah, maybe so. It's a yeah. weak division. Yeah, I know. Well, we're talking about uh, my little series called "New Friends: The Same Seven Questions." I hope it builds up your strength and muscle for evangelism and apologetics. And we are uh, like all the way down to question uh, number five, Rusty. Do you? Uh, do do you believe that uh, all who put their tr- trust and faith in God, m- they move from death to life? And what does that mean? I do. Uh, I think that we see this uh, not only in the stories we read about Jesus, what happens to the people around them, but, but the Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians, I believe it's 517, uh, for all of you uh, who uh, have given your life over to God, you have moved from an old creation to a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And that seems to be this defining moment of, even though it is a process we go through, even though there's moments where we get clearer and clearer, 
um, that transfer of trust of saying, I'm putting my trust into you, Jesus. I'm declaring you the Lord of my life. I'm being baptized into you. I'm confessing my sin to you. These things that we see that are so evident. The moment you transfer your trust over to Jesus, it appears that he has made you a new creation. Now, do you still have habits? Absolutely. Are you still, you know, have the same tendencies to go different directions? Absolutely. It's a little bit like when I moved from Kentucky to California. It was a big change. And I got out here, and there, when I got, walked out of my house to get in my car and drive to work, I was confused. I didn't know which way to go. <laughs> was it in my in my standard way to go? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I uh, when we got to winter time and I put on my heavy coat and I walked outside and it's still seventy, <laughs> I thought, "Wow, I I don't need to do this anymore." You know, mm-hmm. there's just certain habits that you have that you begin to uh, transform, and those begin to happen over a period of time. But I'm still marked as an as a Californian, even though I am from Kentucky. And I think what happens is. In this state, when you transfer your trust to Jesus, you're marked as a Christian, then the Holy Spirit begins to take up residence in your life and do a new work to where as much as you will yield to him, the fruit in your life begins to turn from anxiety and greed and selfishness and anger into things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. doesn't happen overnight, but it certainly does begin to happen. Mm-hmm. So when we move from death to life and we're a new creation in Christ, I know there's this, there's a sin nature that lives inside of us, but shouldn't we start hating sin? Shouldn't we just grow to hate it? I think that happens over time. And for some people, it happens immediately because you recognize, boy, my sin tendencies took me down a road that nearly cost me my life or mm-hmm. it cost me a marriage or it cost me a career. And that anger towards that becomes very evident. For some, we've just been kind of mildly just going through life, just, you know, like Forrest Gump would say, floating like a feather on the breeze. And we find ourselves thinking, boy, I really need to be tethered back to something that's that's solid, that's Jesus, I'm coming to that. And the hatred of sin may not happen right away. But over a period of time, you begin to see and crave the things of God. The scriptures say, taste and see the Lord is good. And the more you crave those things— the less you want the the things of the flesh. You know, personally, I love fried food. I love Oreos. I mean, that's just the way I was raised. But you live in California long enough, and you drink enough wheatgrass and juice (laughs) and eat healthy and all that. Uh I'm by no means a vegan, but I certainly recognize how I feel differently uh, when I have, uh, you know, eaten all the fried foods and Oreos versus uh, how I, I could potentially eat and live, and you begin to crave those things. So maybe some of the positive peer pressure, or maybe we'd call it Christian fellowship, helps us in our sanctification. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, because the people out there that are thinking, I can do this spirituality thing on my own, boy, you are missing it. Because when when you read through the scriptures, and it says, you know, you need to do this, or you should do this, or those kind of things, and even talks about the fruit of the Spirit for you, the Greek word that's used there for you is plural. So as we would say in Kentucky, the word is (laughs) y'all. I like it. The plural version of y'all is all y'all. And it's it's really more of not just fruit of the Spirit in your life, but rather the fruit basket you are a part of in your church. And that's why, listen, the church is full of people that make mistakes. And when people say, I don't want to be a part of a church because they're full of hypocrites, I like to say, well, there's room for one more. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but, 
but we need each other because there's times I roll into Sunday service or into my my small group, and my faith is low, but somebody else's is high, and it raises mine or vice versa, and I can raise theirs. Mm-hmm. There are different people receiving different answers to prayer, and we need that to inspire us uh, rather than feeling like we're all alone. Yeah, great point. Rusty George is my guest. Uh, Rusty, let's move on. Um, when we become believers, um, does God give us all we need for life and godliness? I believe so. Uh, we read about that in the fact that Jesus said when he left, I'm leaving so that another could come, which is the comforter, as he refers to, the paraclete, which is the one uh, that is the third in the triune nature of God, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, and he's better than me. Now, we don't, I mean, many people like to debate, is there a hierarchy amongst the Trinity? Is the Spirit really better than Jesus? I think what he means is, He's better than me because he doesn't live in skin and dwell across the room from you. Now he's going to dwell within you, and we all get that opportunity. So the moment the Spirit takes up residence in your life, my goodness, you have the same power living in you that raised Christ from the dead. So, yes, change is possible, and yes, you can be different, and yes, supernatural ability is there. Does that mean you can go out and you can, uh, you know, levitate a car or uh, do various things like that? I think the better question is why would you need to? Yeah, uh, But the Spirit gives you the power that you need to do exactly what it is you need to do. It might be break an addiction. That might be have the courage to move from one state to another, plant a church. That might be the ability to evangelize in your own uh, job when you'd rather just quit and run. Uh, it might be the, the supernatural ability to walk out of, a, out of a, an abusive relationship, uh, to say no to something you never thought you could, or to say yes to something you always thought you should. Mm-hmm. Last question, Rusty, just with about a minute or so left. Um, when we submit to him and we die to ourself, will we have an abundant life? I believe so. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And anybody who's able to predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off. <laughs> That's an excellent point. It's <laughs> an excellent point. Yeah, people. So I'm going to go with that. Okay. I mean, I know people are concerned about their own personal happiness and they think, well, my definition of abundant life is when I'm happy. And I always think, well, it's great to be happy, but it's really great when you're walking obediently uh, to God's will for your life. And um, I think that's when you enjoy an abundant life. You're exactly right, Bill. I think, I mean, let's just read the tabloids. Yeah, right. We thought had all the beauty and all the power and all the success and they're miserable. I know. Which tells me that abundant life isn't having all that stuff. Abundant life is something deeper and there's something better than happiness and that's joy. And that's a byproduct of having the Holy Spirit. That's what we all long for. Yeah. Rusty, thanks so much for doing this. This has been a blast. I loved having you on the show and talking about um, these questions. Well, I'm honored to be asked, honored to be considered a friend, and praying for your Vikings unless they play my Chiefs. (laughs) All right. I will do the same for you. Thanks so much, Rusty. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. Pastor Rusty George has been my guest. You can go to PastorRustyGeorge.com. Learn more about him. We'll take a break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. 
Maybe you've read some difficult texts from the Old Testament and you thought to yourself, huh, I wonder how they're ever going to preach on this. And I've had that same thought. But my guest is Dr. Uh, Brian Morosky, and he's written a book called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. And we're going to find out exactly how that's done. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's go back to what Paul said to that young apprentice pastor when he said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So every book, every chapter, every verse? That all in all scripture would indeed imply so, I think. Yes, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And then if you keep on reading right into chapter 4, you're, you're quoting from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Yes. You keep reading right into chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, uh, preach that word in chapter 4, verse 2. So every bit of Scripture is profitable for teaching and for preaching. Yeah, but you see these uh, passages and these, these uh, words in the Old Testament where don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk, or, oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths, and you go, okay, that's inspired by God. That's right. They're, <laughs> they're inspired, they're they're preachable, but mm-hmm. that doesn't imply that they're easily preachable. <laughs> okay, I appreciate yeah. that. So, Brian, let's a- let me ask you, you say that all Scripture points to Jesus in some way. I completely agree. Um but I would appreciate if you would explain to everyone, including me, what you mean by that. I mean a couple things by that. There's a lot of different ways that Scripture points to Christ. Uh, just about every page of the Old Testament, you can see the sin problem of people um, coming out in their actions and their behaviors and even the laws that God has to give us. Um, and, and part of that sin points to the need for a Savior in some way. So, as we read the Old Testament and we see that this problem just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse, and even after God disciplines the Israelites through exile, they come back into the land, they still continue to wrestle with the same sorts of problems that they had before the exile, before that discipline. So in one way, it all points to the need for a savior from that sin, uh, somebody who can come in, reverse the curse, provide redemption for his people. And, and in other ways, more specifically, We see that the Old Testament prophesies about Christ uh, either literally, directly, typologically, or uh, in in other ways as well. So there there are both, in a a very broad uh, stroke, ways that the Old Testament looks forward to Christ, and also you see those specific ways that it points directly to the Messiah uh, to come. Mm -hmm. Brian, when I hear a pastor uh, preaching on a difficult text in the Old Testament— I don't know about you, but I get really excited. I, I think I'm so glad they're preaching on that. Do you, you must think it's a big mistake for preachers to ignore some of the difficult texts in, in the Old Testament. I do think it's a mistake to ignore it. I think part of homiletics, part of preaching and teaching even, is hermeneutics. You're showing your congregation or you're showing the people that you're teaching how you handle the Bible. And when we skip the difficult text, when we when we gloss over the genealogies or when we kind of skip past the law or whatever it might be, what we do is we effectively tell people in our congregation that those passages aren't as inspired or they're not as important to study. They're not as important to apply. And I think that's that's the problem with skipping those tough passages is that you're communicating something about the passages that you're skipping. Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Brian Morosky is my guest. His book is called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. Now, you did a beautiful job of laying this book out, uh, Brian. You've got your, uh, you break your book into 10 core chapters, and each of them deals with a hard issue. So let's jump into some of these. Which one would you like to uh, talk about today? Well, uh, how about we talk about genealogies? That's one that I think a lot of preachers come up against when they're preaching some Old Testament narrative books, and they don't always know what to do with it. Okay, that'd be awesome. So tell me about why pastors are reluctant to, to teach on that, and tell me why the genealogy is so important. I think part of it is that the genealogies are settled within narratives of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You don't see a book of just genealogies set apart from everything else. They're always settled within a narrative. So when a pastor is preaching a series on Genesis, Genesis 5, you know, that that might be a challenging text to to preach right after you've just preached the text of Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Genesis 6 is very exciting. Genesis 7 is very exciting. You get to some of these texts with the genealogies, it kind of slows down that series, or, or at least it has the potential to. So I think that's why some preachers are really reluctant to deal with that. Maybe they'll just kind of group it together at the end of a sermon or at the beginning of a sermon, but not really actually preach that text. And part of preaching that text is to say, here's what the text is. You read it out loud, uh, which is a challenge in itself. But you also explain the meaning of that text and the application of it, like you would with any other narrative around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what pastor wants to take the time to learn how to pronounce all those names correctly? Yeah, that, that's a challenge. I, I just actually preached Ezra chapter 2 uh, a couple weeks ago at Riverstone Church in Yardley, Pennsylvania, and uh, that is a, an entire list of names. It's got over 100 different names, and not <laughs> one of them is familiar. I mean, maybe maybe one or two of them are yeah. familiar, but most of them are just, uh, they're, they're challenging. But that's part of the text of Scripture. Which is beautiful, them. yeah. Yeah, but, but when yeah, you go from I, one name to the next, it does sort of start to feel like, oh, where is he going with this? Right, and I think a lot of people were wondering that at first. <laughs> <laughs> but but by the end of the sermon, hopefully they saw this is relevant. This is very, very relevant for our lives. This is edifying, and it's just as applicable as Ezra 1 and Ezra 3. Yeah. Now, you talk about the, the, the details in a text, and you say that God is in the details, and I would love for you to talk about that. Sure. Yeah, what I mean by that is that every detail, every word of Scripture is inspired and useful for preaching, teaching, correction, training, and righteousness. So even even those little details that sometimes kind of challenge us, that maybe maybe we don't understand all the time why they're there, or perhaps it's something that we can we feel like we can just kind of gloss over and, and hit the bigger idea of the text— but those details are what make up the main message of the text. They lend itself to that main message. They kind of point towards what the author is saying. If you take those details out, you've changed something in the author's argument. Mm-hmm. So by keeping those details in there and really dealing with them, we, we are seeing the fullness of that author's argument. Maybe you can get to it without some of those details, but, but maybe you can't. You know, sometimes those details are so important and essential that if we skip them, we really missed the main idea. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brian Morosky is my guest, and he's written a book called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. And in Chapter 4, Brian, you talk about preaching law. And when you talk about the law, you see a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. 
Would you help us with that? There are some who see a very uh, sharp distinction between moral law and ceremonial law. So moral law would be like, thou shalt not murder. And a ceremonial law would be like you quoted in the beginning uh, of this of this conversation here. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. There's perhaps something um, related to the cult or ritual, um, an aspect of that that might relate to, to some sort of religious ceremony. I don't necessarily see a sharp distinction, as sharp as others see it. I, I think that there are some laws that certainly have ceremonial aspects to them, but all laws are moral. All laws have some kind of a moral bent to them or some kind of a moral um, principle behind them. So in my book, I don't make a very sharp distinction between them, but but try to help readers understand how all the law points to our need for a Savior, points to our sinfulness, and even points to the character of God uh, who who made those laws, who gave those laws, and who is behind those laws. Mm-hmm. So the moral law does point to the gospel. It does, just yeah. as a ceremonial law does, just as any law does. Yeah. So how do you preach the PG-13 text in the Old Testament? I use that phrase PG-13 to talk about texts that uh, if, if they were perhaps acted out on the big screen, they would be PG-13 or R-rated even. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, at one point I wanted to have it as an R-rated uh, chapter, but uh, my publisher wisely said, maybe we should go PG-13 here. Mm-hmm. It, might, it might be a little bit better for readers. But um, those are the texts that have heavy, heavy violence, uh, heavy sexual themes, uh, just some very difficult material to read through. Um, but one of the ways I encourage people to preach this is to be very sensitive to the audience that you're preaching to. Some audiences can can handle that. Sometimes you have, on the other hand, young children in the congregation. And it's not that we should skip those, but by giving the audience a heads up, maybe a week or two ahead of time, letting them know, hey, there's a very uh, difficult passage that's coming up. Here's what it is. Read it ahead of time. Parents, be informed. Maybe have some extra child care provided for the congregation so that way kids can go somewhere else if, if parents think it's a little bit too mature of a uh, subject matter. Those are some of the ways I think you should handle that text for the audience. Uh, and then the other thing I encourage preachers to do is to really stick with the language of the text. Don't go outside mm. of the text to, to look for more synonyms for the violence that you see or for the the other themes that you're reading there. Stick with the language of the text, and that kind of gives a preacher permission to use that language to talk about and discuss it in a very frank way uh, that, that doesn't gloss it over, but also deals with the text as it as it stands. Yeah. Brian, what, why do you think the Bible includes so, so, many, so much violence? What, what is the purpose, and, and what can we learn from that? I think it reflects our sinful nature. Okay. It, it's, it's reflecting reality. We are sinful people who are prone to kill one another. You, you can't even get out of four chapters of Scripture before you have people killing each other. So I think it's really reflecting who we are as people and, and again, that desperate need that we have for a Savior. We need the gospel. Uh, We need Jesus Christ to come in to redeem us, to bring us peace, not just with himself, but with others as well. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about uh, preaching theologically loaded texts. So when uh, when you're up against that, how do you navigate your way through those? Yeah, these are texts that maybe generate a lot of conversation or teaches uh, something that a uh, subject that is perhaps theologically sensitive either mm-hmm. for your audience or for the culture. So, G- give us an example of one. 
Yeah, I was going to say, for example, my the, the, one of the first ones I ever ran into as a preacher was the hard heart of Pharaoh. Okay. The the, the book of Exodus talks about his hard heart and how um, sometimes the, the book describes it as God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And sometimes the wording of the Hebrew text just says it passively that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And depending on your your theological understanding of that, maybe you might lean more Calvinistic in how you would describe it, maybe more Arminian. Um, you put the emphasis on Pharaoh, you put the emphasis on God. That would be a, a theologically loaded text, because either way you preach it, you're going to have some people saying amen, or you're going to have some people really bristling, I think, uh, with how you, you handle that. Mm-hmm. What about when preachers tend to repeat themselves, which I always think is not a bad thing? Yeah, even, even the Apostle Paul said it, it's not a bad thing when he repeated himself to the Philippians. So uh, I, I think it's a good thing to repeat yourself, and it, it's helpful because that's something the congregation can really learn from. You see a lot of repetition in Scripture, um, and that's that's something that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about parallel texts, um, if that came up, what would you say preaching parallel texts? What does that mean? So when I talk about preaching parallel texts, what I mean is the text of Scripture that uh, reflect other texts of Scripture. So either they will quote other texts, they'll allude to other passages of Scripture, or perhaps even um, kind of echo them in a very broad way. So one of the things I do in my, in my chapter on parallel texts is to say if, if you're preaching a text that requires knowledge of a previous text of Scripture, how do you handle that from the pulpit? What are some practical ways that you can help a congregation who maybe doesn't have that background readily available in their mind, how do you preach kind of two texts at once, once in the background and once right in front of you? How do you do that in a way that you don't lose your congregation or sound like a, an academic in a, in a seminary? Mm-hmm. Because when you teach, uh, Brian, do you find yourself focusing in on one text and do you jump around with a lot of other texts supporting your message or can you stay focused on one? I really focus in on one primarily. I, like I, I, I really like to bring out the meaning of that text. And I think if you're jumping around too much, it's too much of a challenge to really make sure that you're, you're developing the context appropriately of each of those texts that you're preaching. So I tend to, to center in on a chapter or a passage and really dig in deep and also try to draw the application from that passage. But, but what I, when I'm talking about parallel texts, I'm saying sometimes those passages that you're in they they echo, they quote other passages, and, and there's a need to have a broader base of knowledge of Scripture than just the one passage that you're preaching on that moment. Mm-hmm. I like that. Dr. Brian Morosky is my guest. He's written a book called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. If you have a question or comment, text line is open, 877-933-2484. We'll take a break and be back with Brian in just a minute. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. My guest is Dr. Brian Morowski. He is a senior pastor of Bethany Bible Church in Bellevue, Michigan, and an adjunct professor. Uh, Brian, as I look at this topic of preaching difficult texts of the Old Testament, what is one of your favorite difficult texts to preach on? 
One of my favorite texts, I really, I do enjoy preaching genealogies, strangely enough. Okay. It was where, it was where I kind of first discovered my love for um, all of Scripture. I, I wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. I wasn't quite sure what to do with it until I dug in, started studying, and realized exactly what was there. Um, since, since pastoring, I'm, I'm actually right now, I'm a uh, full-time professor at Cairn University, in uh, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, and my my job here as a as a professor is to teach a lot of Old Testament courses. And one of the things I do is to try to make sure that my students understand how do you how do you deal with some of these texts that that you see all the time. And genealogy is one of them. I, I enjoy one of the things I encourage people to do in my book is to is to chart those genealogies out uh, to make a to make a visual representation mm-hmm. of them. And by doing that, you can kind of see some of the connections that the author is emphasizing, and you can see where those connections highlight the themes of that book itself. So bringing some of that out, it, it's really a joy for me to, to see uh, what is hidden beneath some of those more deeply uh, covered gems in Scripture. Yeah, I'm looking in your book on page 20, and you do have a, a segmented genealogy of Genesis chapter 10, and I'm I'm looking at this and I, I'm thinking, how much recall do you, Brian, have if somebody said, so tell me uh, who Ham married and what were their kids' names? Because you look at these names and you go, I am so lost. Yeah, I, I, it's not that I've necessarily memorized a lot of genealogies. I, I don't. My life verse is not taken from Genesis 10. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, depending on what genealogy you're you're speaking to, I, I might be able to tell you one one or two before or after. Sure. Um, the the point isn't to get people to memorize them. The point isn't to get people to to walk out saying, okay, here's here's uh, the relationship between Ham and Seth. You know. The, the point is to say this is what the author of Scripture is doing with this genealogy, and here is how that applies to my life as a as a believer. Uh, here's how that challenges me. Here's how that enlightens my understanding of what the author is doing in this this text of Scripture. Mm-hmm. When you look at a passage like in Second Kings chapter two, where Elisha is jeered by those boys, um, do you? Do you t- tackle that, and, and do you enjoy preaching on that, or um, how do you deal with passages that are challenging? Like yeah, so that? a passage, a passage like that where Elijah's jeered and and the, he calls down a couple of bears to maul these kids. Yeah, um, it there's I think it's not it's not something that I would say I enjoy preaching because it's it's something that illuminates the problem of sin. I mean, I really like preaching. I love preaching, but when you preach a difficult text like that, that you have the the consequence of violence and the judgment that comes as a result of sin, that I think should really weigh heavily on our hearts and we should approach it with great trepidation and and trembling, really. But uh, in that passage in particular, you know, he's he's being picked on because he's bald and he, he mauls a bunch of Youth. I mean, I, I think some pastors can have a good time with some of the jokes that might come out of that, but <laughs> but ultimately, it's a passage about judgment and a bunch of young men getting mauled to death. So, uh, you know, it's it's not a a joy to preach that, and yet it's a joy to preach. If, yeah. if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, I think it would be a joy to help um, people grow deeper in their knowledge of God's word. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and I, I know that's the point of 
preaching difficult texts in the Old Testament is you want to point people to places of deeper knowledge and greater understanding. That's right. Yeah, my, my hope is that this book will really stimulate a lot of people, not just in preaching, but for teachers of the Word of God. I When I was a, um, in, in pastoral ministry, I had a number of people that uh, were reading this book and really benefiting from it from a lay level. They were reading it and understanding better, how do I read Scripture? How do I interpret Scripture? Some of Some of the emphases in each chapter is not just how do you preach this? But what does it mean? How do you how do you deal with law? How do you interpret that in the Old Testament? How do you deal with some of these violent texts or uh, genealogies or, or whatever it might be? So my hope is that people will be better readers of Scripture, and that that in turn will lead to better teaching from our pulpits and from our classrooms. Mm-hmm. So what is some advice for believers who might be tempted to skip some of the more difficult parts of the Bible? I, I liken it to eating a a walnut uh, or a a peanut, maybe we could say. I, I was at a restaurant with my son a while back. I have, I have a couple of young kids, and my son was at this restaurant, and they one of those restaurants that give the peanuts at the table where you kind of have to crack them open and you can eat them before you, you get appetizer. And he was just mashing into these things and doing a lot of hard work to uncover a little peanut that he would then throw in his <laughs> mouth and, and really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And and I thought of that, and I use that as an analogy in my book, because I think it's a great analogy for what we do when we encounter these difficult texts of the Old Testament, because they they have this unsightly shell to them, this this look where you, you look at it and you're like, how am I, what am I going to do with this? Uh, and yet, when you do the hard work of digging in and you really put some effort into it, that the reward is worth it. So my advice to Christians who are tempted to skip these parts is to dig in. Trust that there's a reason for that text there. God inspired this scripture, and there's a reason for it. And the, the further you dig in, the more you're able to really wrestle with that text and see what's there, the more reward and benefit you're going to have. They're not always easy. They are difficult texts, but the reward is worth the effort that you put into to studying them. Mm-hmm. Brian, you have a nice sort of um, uh, personality that has a lot of humility. I mean, I'm just meeting you for the first time today, but I know Paul talks about uh, how important it is how to remain humble, and he talks about knowledge will puff a person up. And I suppose if you get to a point after years of seminary and you do your, your doctoral work, you can have a sense of, um, I'm a pretty smart guy, so you better listen. Yeah, the, the text of Scripture humbles me on a daily basis. Uh, I, the, the more I study, the more I know how little I know about the Word of God and how vast God is. Um, right after our conversation, I'm going to preach at a, a chapel here at Cairn University for our grad students, and I'm preaching on Isaiah 40, which reflects on the grandeur of God, just how great He is and how little knowledge we have in compared to Him. So I think if you're if you're studying Scripture and you get to the point where you're thinking that you really are, are, are hot stuff because you know something, you've probably missed some of the bigger points that you really should be seeing. Uh, so that my, my sinfulness is ever before me on a daily basis. I'm so thankful for what Christ has done in my heart. Amen. And, and I'm really just humbled that he would use me in any way uh, to, to glorify him in ministry. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then you've got a couple, uh, couple young kids. 
I do. I have I have four young kids, ages two, five, eight, and ten. Oh, you're a busy man. So, so life is always a pleasure. We <laughs> we are always going. It's it's a it's a lot of joy, and and it's great to see those kids. Um, many of them at least walking with the Lord already. Uh, what a, what a joy it is as a dad. Yeah, oh, I bet. And then did you uh, have some candy last night? Did the kids have some candy? Oh, my kids cleaned up. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, we we just moved into a neighborhood here in uh, Pennsylvania, and yeah. boy, they within an hour their their bags were filled. They they probably came home with fifteen full size candy bars oh. on top of all the other ones. Uh, and then my daughter, my ten year old, comes into the house after about an hour of it, gets changed into a different costume, and goes back out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, think I've ever heard that thought, before. That's brilliant. Yeah, she, she's got quite the hustle. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As as dad, I taught them the principle of tithing and took a percentage of what they had. Very and, smart. Uh, made sure I brought that with me to work today. Very smart. <laughs> You're a smart man. Thanks for doing the show, Brian. I'd like to meet you. I really appreciate you having me, Bill. You bet. Dr. Brian Morosky has been my guest. His book is called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Podcasts like mine are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. Thank you.